You're listening to TIP. In this episode, I bring back my friends, Ashley Kerr and Tony J. Robinson to talk all about real estate partnerships and getting an update on the Airbnb investing market. Ashley Kerr is the host of the Bigger Pockets Rookie Podcast and author of the books, Real Estate Rookie, 90 Days to Your First Investment and Real Estate Partnerships. At 26 years old, Ashley Kerr was deep in debt and working at a career she no longer loved. Now, less than a decade later, she manages a portfolio of more than 30 properties with complete financial freedom. Tony J. Robinson is well known in the world of real estate investing as the host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Rookie Podcast and author of the Real Estate Partnerships book with Ashley Kerr. After starting his investment career by purchasing single-family homes as long-term rentals, he found the tremendous opportunity that short-term rentals provide and has since focused 100% of his efforts on growing that part of his business. Tony's expertise is in building systems and creating the automation needed to effectively manage multiple short-term rentals at once. He's also the head of acquisitions for Alpha Geek Capital and puts each property through rigorous analysis before adding it to the portfolio. Partnerships have played a big role in my own personal real estate journey, so I had a great time talking about the process and how to do it right with the authors of the book on real estate partnerships. I hope you guys enjoy it too and learn something that can help you progress in your real estate journey. Let's dive in. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring back Ashley Kerr and Tony Robinson. Guys, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having us back. Yeah, excited to be here, man. You know, I think Ashley and I have both been on separately, but this will be our first time as a, as a duo. So good times, man. Yeah, I think Ashley's been on a couple times, two, three times maybe. And then Tony, you've been on at least once. Yeah, this might be my third time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. First time together. Give us a quick overview. You guys mentioned you've both been on the show, but it's been a while. So give us a quick overview of your backgrounds. And we haven't really chatted in a while. So I, I catch me up on where you guys' real estate portfolios are today. Again, my name is Tony J. Robinson. And not to be confused with Tony Robbins, Ash and I were just talking about this yesterday in another podcast episode. But I am a real estate investor based out of California, primarily focused on the short-term rental space. We've got about 30 properties that we mostly own. I have a couple that we co-host and we're actually getting into arbitrage now as well, but mostly own those units. And we're working on some commercial deals now as well, getting into the, the kind of boutique motel, hotel, campground space. Same. And we, we launched uh, Robinson Capital, which is a, a new company I started earlier this year with the goal of commercial real estate transactions. So yeah, man, just uh, really nose to the ground right now, trying to build out this whole ecosystem around the hospitality space. Since we last spoke, uh, Tony and I authored a book together, Real Estate Partnership. Oh, yeah. And I wrote a book. So here it is. Are you here? Anyone watching? But yeah, so that uh, took up a lot of time uh, for the last year, I would guess. I think that's when we started writing it. It's been a really fun journey to get to do that with Tony, not only co-host the Real Estate Rookie podcast, but also to write this book together. I've been hosting Bigger Pockets boot camps where we've been educating people on getting started in real estate investing, how to get your first or next deal within 90 days. So I usually do about 
two to three of those boot camps a year. And then as far as investing, I have about 30 long-term rentals, a couple uh, short-term rentals in my portfolio. I recently renovated a couple cabins and have been renting those out as short-term rentals. And it's been a lot of fun. It's also been a money pit, but um, I'm glad to have my strong foundation of long-term rentals to fund a passion project for me. And um, I have a burr that's currently under contract. And then a house flip I'm actually going to do will be my first house flip locally. I partnered uh, with another investor in Seattle and did a house flip. But this will be the first one I'm doing on my own. We're going to spend probably the majority of the conversation today talking about partnerships in real estate, specifically your guys' book and all the stuff you guys talk about in the book. But before we do, it's kind of timely. I want to ask you both. I'll ask Ashley as well, but it's probably going to be mainly Tony, just given how many short-term rentals he has. But I stayed in a... I want to know how your short-term rentals are doing for both of you. And I'm curious, Like I see things on Twitter that like, oh, the Airbnb bubble is finally popping, or I see that all over social. So I'm like kind of curious what your guys' experience has been lately. I know, if I remember correctly, Tony, you were in Joshua Tree and, and some fairly vacation destination. I'm curious how that's all going. And then I also want to talk about... I, I generally don't like Airbnbs personally. That's why I don't invest in any. I don't mind the business model. The business model is fine. I just don't personally like to stay in them all that much. So that's why I don't invest in them. I generally just prefer hotels. But this past week, I was in LA and I stayed in an Airbnb. And it was, a, it was a fine experience, but I actually felt really bad for the Airbnb owner because it was in an apartment building and the apartment building lost power. And so he had to refund everybody that was staying there. He had to refund me and like I had to find a new place. And it wasn't his fault, right? A transformer exploded. So he was like kind of screwed. So that was not a, not a great experience for him. So I'm just kind of curious to hear how things are going for you, you guys on the short-term rental front. Tony, before you go into your spiel, I know you have way more information on this. I just want to say that's really interesting that you were refunded because I've actually had in my Airbnbs the power go out, whether it was a storm or whatever, and nobody has ever asked for a refund or nor have we ever given one. Wow. Yeah. I didn't even ask. He just... So I was out of the Airbnb at the time. It was during the day and he called me and he's like, hey, I don't know if you're at the Airbnb, but there's no power. And I don't want you to be. I mean, we're. I was in Southern California. It's hot. You know, I was on the ninth floor, I think, out of ten. So it's, I mean, it's got some elevations. So it's gonna be pretty hot. And so he's like, "Yeah, I just don't want the unit to be super hot for you. So you can either like, we'll either just refund you the two nights, or just go stay at a hotel that's similar priced to whatever your nightly rate is that you paid for this Airbnb, and we'll cover the hotel. So that's what he did. He covered the hotel for two nights, and that was it. And it was super nice of him. I really appreciated it. And I don't know really why he did that, but he did. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it was totally out of his control. He felt super bad, but it was, yeah, it was out of his control. A transformer exploded and there was nothing he could do. They were working on it. But yeah, it did suck though, being on the ninth floor and there was no elevator. So I had to like climb so many flights of stairs. So that wasn't ideal, but. Yeah. So I can give kind of my, my two cents here. Just like any other type of asset class, the markets for Airbnbs are local. And there are definitely some markets that have seen revenue pullbacks in the last couple of years, but there are definitely still markets across the country that are seeing revenues increase year over year. We put out a YouTube video, my wife and I. So if you guys search up the Real Estate Robinsons on YouTube, um, there's actually a back-to-back series of videos that we're, we're doing, or three videos really. The, the first video in the series that we did was debunking the kind of Airbnb bust idea itself. 
there was this tweet that went viral uh, a few weeks ago by this influencer named Nick Gurley. And he was saying that like there's going to be a mass wave of forced selling from all Airbnb investors because every market across the country is seeing revenues collapse. And he says something like how the Smoky Mountains is down 50% and some of these other bigger markets are down 50%. First, AirDNA came out and said, hey, this guy's data does not align with ours. And AirDNA is one of the largest data aggregators in the short-term rental space that exists. Airbnb came out and said, this guy's data does not align with ours. Now, Airbnb, they're probably a little bit biased, right? Uh, so you know, you'd expect them to say that. But we, in that video, we kind of debunked some of that data with our, our own research and some of our own properties performance. And we shared that on our video. You know, our, our best property in the Smoky Mountains is up year over year. And some of them are down, but probably not for those reasons. We had like some maintenance issues. We had to shut it down for a little while. But I'd say the Smoky Mountains as a market is probably still going pretty strong. Joshua Tree as a market, that entire market is seeing revenue pullback. Um, it's probably down about 17% as a market year over year. We have some properties in that market that are up year over year. We have some properties in that market that are down year over year. So there's a mix, there's a mix bag there, right? Depends on the property, depends on the owner. But there are multiple markets across the country that are still seeing revenue increases. And the video that we put out on our YouTube channel last week was highlighting five markets that we found within like, I don't know, two hours worth of research that saw really strong revenue increases. So I think the point, Robert, is that pre-pandemic, uh, and even like early pan, like post pandemic, like 2021, you could probably buy a property anywhere, you know, any major market across the country, slap any kind of property up on Airbnb, and you'd make a killing because there wasn't as much supply. Guests were limited in where they had to choose, prices were elevated. Today, if you want to be a successful host in the Airbnb space, you have to be disciplined in the market that you're choosing. You have to be disciplined in your analysis of those properties. And you have to be a better host in general about how you do those things. So I think as long as you check those three boxes, market selection, deal analysis, property management, you can still be successful and profitable as an Airbnb host. Have you had any issues with changes to the Airbnb platform? I believe they made some big changes to like the algorithm and what properties they're kind of like featuring and things like that. I think they're showing like really unique properties now and like more mm -hmm. your experiential stuff. Like how has that impacted you? There was a lot of, uh, I think, fear when Airbnb rolled out their summer release last year that kind of focused on the unique stays. And they kind of changed how the, the search results were, were being displayed. They pulled back some of those things. So that there's a little bit of that element of what was there before. We're in a bit of a unique situation because like for in Joshua Tree, for example, most of our portfolio out there is considered a unique stay because they're tiny homes. So we naturally got a little bit more love from the algorithm just because of the structure of our buildings. In the Smoky Mountains, the majority of the properties out there are all cabins, right? Um, so there's not a whole heck of a lot of uh, you know uniqueness out there. So I wouldn't say we've been incredibly impacted by the change. Again, I, I think it's probably more so those properties that are in the the mediocre middle, where it's like, hey, you're you're not a unique stay, you're you're not a luxury stay, you're you're not even really like a, a top of the line like economy stay. You're like grandma's green carpets and furnishings from Facebook Marketplace, and like that kind of listing is probably the one that's being impacted the most. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for the update. I was just curious, and again, like I said, it was top yeah. of mind for me given that I just stayed in an Airbnb for the first time in a while. But let's talk about real estate partnerships. It's a topic that's actually pretty near and dear to my heart. Almost all of my real estate deals have been with partners. I've had really good luck so far, especially compared to some of the horror stories that I've heard. And I'm sure that we'll talk about today. So let's start by talking about when and why someone might want to use a real estate, a partnership in real estate. So I think the first thing to look at is why do you need a partner? What are you missing? Is it you don't have time, you don't have money, you don't have experience, you don't have the knowledge, or maybe you're just afraid to get started and you want to do it with somebody else. 
first figuring out if you even need a partner. And then from there, you want to kind of analyze what your strengths and your weaknesses are. The last thing you want to do is go into a partnership and partner with someone who wants to do the exact same thing as you. So nobody wants to do the bookkeeping. Nobody wants to analyze the deal. Everyone just wants to be the one that designs the houses or whatever that may be. That's not going to be a great partnership because you're not going to be able to share the roles and responsibilities. So you really want to find someone who will complement your weaknesses. What are you not good at? So I think just like starting at analyzing yourself and looking at what you are good at and then looking at, okay, I'm really good at this, but do I even want to do that too? That's also an important piece of it. And then from there, figuring out, okay, here's what I need in somebody. And I also need them to have capital because I have no capital. So Ash talked about the, like the, the missing piece component. So yeah, I, I think everything Ashley said is, is incredibly valid and important. Thank you, Tony. I think the, the only thing I'd, I'd add to that is, and obviously our, our, the entire purpose of our book is encouraging people to use partnerships in the smart way, but there's also a, I think, a slice of the population that might not need a partnership. So if you're able to kind of check all those boxes that you need on your own to get that first deal that you have your eyes set on, then maybe honestly, you don't need to partner someone. If you've got the time, you've got the ability, you've got the desire, you've got the capital, you've got the, the resource, you've got the experience, maybe you don't need a partnership, right? I think it's important to kind of see, okay, what pieces of the puzzle am I missing and then fill it in that way. But if you have all the pieces, it, it might be beneficial in that first go around just to kind of do it yourself. What are the different types of partnerships that you guys outline in your book? Yeah. So there, there's two key types of partnerships that we talk about. You have a debt-based partnership, and then there's an equity-based partnership. And both kind of have their, their pros and their cons. With a debt-based partnership, and I'll, you know, let's say that Ashley and Tony agree to go into a, a deal together using a debt-based partnership. And let's say that uh, I want to flip a house. So I do all the work. I find this off-market property. I come up with a scope of work and a budget for the rehab. But then I say, I don't have $100,000 to fund this rehab. So I go to Ashley, who's got 100K sitting in the bank. I say, Ash, I have this property that I found. It's going to cost me $100,000 to complete this rehab. Can you loan me $100,000? Ashley says, yes, Tony, I'll give you that $100,000. I need a 12% annualized return on my money. Right. So if I'm going to give you $100,000, you got to pay me back... What is that? A thousand bucks a month. And the benefit to Ashley in that scenario is that She's getting a fixed return. So even if I botch this flip and maybe I don't make as much profit as I was thinking I was going to make, Ashley's still going to get her thousand dollars per month because that's what we agreed to in that in that debt partnership. The inverse of that is true as well, where she doesn't necessarily get to participate in the upside. So say I was only expecting to make thirty thousand dollars in profit, but then I, I just like crush it and I make three hundred thousand dollars in profit. Ashley still only gets that that twelve percent interest. For someone that's looking into a debt partnership, there are pros and cons on both sides. So if you want limited risk and limited upside as a person lending the money, then a debt partnership could be good. If you want to keep more of the upside for yourself as the person that's borrowing the money, then a debt partnership could be good. But also there's that risk of you having to guarantee that that person's money back. I'll quickly touch on the the equity side, Rob, and then I'll, I'll shut up for a second here. But the equity partnership is what I think most folks are thinking of when they think of a, a partnership. In an equity partnership, say it's the same exact flip. Ashley and I say, hey, Ashley, let's go into this deal together. Uh, Both of our names are going to be on title for this property. We're going to share ownership in this property. 
We're going to share equally in the downside and we're going to share equally in the upside. So we, we say, hey, Ashley, I found the deal and I'm going to work on disposition. So I'll be the person like, say I'm a realtor and I'm going to get it listed and work with the, the buyer's agents and do all this stuff. Uh, but Ashley's going to manage the rehab. So we come in, we divvy up the responsibilities. I take the initial acquisition and the disposition. Ashley takes the middle chunk of the property management in the middle. And we say, hey, we're just going to split everything down the middle. So I'm going to put up 50% of the cash. Ashley puts up 50% of the cash. When we go to sell, I get 50% of the, the, pro- the profits. Ashley gets 50%. So those are kind of the two basic layouts of, of potential partnerships versus either debt or equity. For my first partnership, I actually did a hybrid model of that. I had a partner that put in the capital, the full purchase price of the property, and we actually set it as a mortgage for him. So he had a lien on the property and he was getting principal and interest payments every single month for the money he had put into the property. Plus, he got 50% equity of the property. So he was getting 50% of the cash flow and then also getting, you know, when we sold the house, eventually he got 50% of, you know, the profit in that property. That was like very generous for me to do to him. I did all the property management. I oversaw the little rehab we had to do, everything like that. I found the deal, but it was a way for me to get started. I really wanted to show this guy that I knew what I was doing and I wanted to also make him feel secure and giving. He gave me his life savings. Well, yeah, he drained his bank account and gave me that money. And I, so I wanted to like, here's how you're going to get paid back. Plus, you're going to be making this extra money on the interest, and it was five and a half percent. And then also, you're going to make some of the cash flow. And then when we sell it, you'll get part of the profit of what has appreciated and the equity built it from the mortgage pay down too. So there's definitely different ways, and that's the big struggle. Everybody wants to know how do I structure my partnership, and there's so many variables that come into it. So with this book, we tried to ask have you look at the right questions to ask yourself and ask your partner as to, okay, what do we both want out of this? And try to help you figure out how to structure it to what fits your guys' needs. Did he get his whole life savings back? (laughs) Yeah, we actually did sell the house a couple of years ago. And um, we've done a couple other deals together. But um, yeah, he actually, after he did his life savings, he actually went and put a home equity loan on his house to buy the next one. So he was into it. Wow, that's a lot of faith in you. But yeah, that's a good point, Ashley. And Tony outlined the two separate sides really well. And then, like you said, you can you can kind of combine the two, of course. And there's a nearly infinite number of options that you can you can do in between. I think a lot of people listening are probably have in the back of their mind, horror stories about partnerships and just that's kind of like the underlying theme I think that a lot of people are worried about and we're going to talk about a lot more about partnerships how to have successful ones and stuff but I want to kind of just get the the horror stories out of the way and hear what what you guys have heard on your podcast maybe things you've experienced yourself let's let's talk about some of the horror stories first then we'll we'll dive back into the the nitty-gritty of partnerships well I actually just heard yesterday of a Ponzi scheme Somebody I know gave their money to somebody to partner with them. And it ended up just being a big, huge Ponzi scheme where they were taking, I think it ended up being like $230 million they had taken from people and just taking more money to pay back, not even pay back the other people, but to pay them their monthly payments or quarterly payments, however their deal was structured. But I think anytime you're giving money to someone, that seems to be more detrimental to someone as a partner that you're losing out. But also you have to think of all the other ways you can lose out, like putting in so much of your time 
towards a deal and then it falling apart because of your partner or something like that. It's not just the monetary value that you can lose out in a partnership. There's, you know, it can damage your reputation. And that Ponzi scheme I heard about yesterday, it was somebody, the person I knew had tried to get other friends to invest in that. And does that hurt that guy? <laughs> you know, anytime, can he go out and recommend anyone else investing with anyone ever again after that? So I think there's so many elements that when you connect yourself with someone in a partnership, that it's more than just losing money on a deal, that there's a lot of different ways that it can actually affect you. I just want to ask that because I, I think that so many people would benefit from entering into a real estate partnership, but their mind goes to that question first, Robert, of like, well, man, there's so many ways this can go wrong. But there, there are ways to mitigate the risk of entering into a partnership. And Ash, do our best, Ash and I do our best to kind of illustrate those ways. But like, for example, you can, and this is what we encourage everyone to do, is to, to try and date people before you necessarily get into, into bed with them. And the Ponzi scheme might be a little bit tougher to, <laughs> to avoid that, right? But in a general real estate partnership, you want to date someone a little bit, I think, before you, before you really get into bed with them. So you can date people in two ways. There's two, there's two easy ways to date someone. It can either be with the amount of capital or the duration of the partnership. So if we go back to the example I was given earlier about Ash and I partnering on a, on a flip together, flips are, are great ways to kind of date someone because typically you're in and out in several months. So if Ash and I partner on a flip together and say it's a, whatever, a five or six month project, we're only tied to each other for that one deal for the, the, those six months. So if we get to the end of that project and we say like, ah, man, you know, Ash, like Tony's kind of a, uh, an idiot. I don't know if I really like working with Tony. She can just walk away from me because that transaction is ended. There's nothing that's still tying us together. The second way that you can date someone first, I should say, is, is by the, the amount of capital that's invested. Let's say that Ashley and I uh, buy a long-term rental together. But say you know it's it's in a very inexpensive market, and, and say we're buying the house for like forty thousand bucks or something like that. Like that's our our cash investment is forty thousand bucks, so twenty thousand dollars each. Maybe even something smaller than that, right? Say it's like a a, a five thousand dollar investment for each of us, right? I can sleep sound at, at night knowing that I could lose five thousand dollars and walk away from that partnership without it ruining me financially. So if you are going into partnership with someone. Maybe don't put up your life savings, right? Or, or pull a HELOC on your house. Again, Ash is probably in a different situation because she knew that person personally. But if this is someone that you don't know on that level, trying to invest a, a dollar amount that wouldn't you know, wreck you financially if that deal went sideways. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? 
Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. Ashley, you mentioned that it's more about asking the right questions going into a partnership than it is like following a specific exact structure. So I want to touch on both of those things. Like, let's say someone, I think this is very common, especially for people listening, people that are new in real estate, they might have someone that's bringing all the cash to a deal and they're going to do the majority of the work or all the work while the other person's pretty passive. I know there's not like a set rule here, but like, how do you generally value and balance what each person is bringing in that case, like money versus time and effort? And then what are the types of questions that they should be asking to really figure that out? Yeah, I think the best way if somebody is putting in what we call it sweat equity, so they're going to be maybe doing the bookkeeping, they're going to be the property manager, they're going to be the project manager on the rehab, any of those things is, okay, how much would it cost for us to go and hire somebody to do that job? So then what you can actually do is for anyone that's kind of putting in work into the partnership, and it's not just putting in capital, is to have them write out. It's like, okay, Ashley, you're getting paid $100 per month to do the bookkeeping. So that way, if Ashley ever stops doing the bookkeeping, there's $100 to go and actually pay a bookkeeper to do it. And it's not affecting that equity value. So we're still 50-50. And but I'm paid a hundred dollars for the bookkeeping, and then our cash flows after you know that expense has been paid out with all the other expenses. So it's ever left. So that way, it's not okay. We're going into this partnership fifty fifty. I'm going to do the property management. I'm going to do the bookkeeping, and then you're going to do maintenance. And then I decide one day, you know what? I don't want to do anything anymore. I'm not going to do the property management. We're going to hire a third party property management company. But you still have to do the maintenance. And then that's where it becomes all, that's not fair. You don't have to do anything and you're getting 50% of the cash flow. So I think right there is putting dollar amounts and paying each other for your roles in the business. And also, as much as you want to like DIY and how you know effective it can be doing things all by yourself or all on your own when you begin and not outsource everything, like it's a great way to get started. You learn all the roles and you're not spending a ton of your cash flow hiring other people. But as you grow and scale, you really do get burnt out on having to actually open the mail, <laughs> like, you know, all the rent checks that come in, all the, you know, the bills that come in, writing the checks. Like you don't want to do that stuff anymore. And 
So I think um, really planning in your operating agreement, your partnership agreement of how to have a plan to outsource some of these roles and responsibilities can really help you figure out your equity position. How can someone overcome imposter syndrome? We see this in so many different areas, but I know people experience this when getting into real estate partnerships, especially if somebody's giving you their whole life savings like they did for you, Ashley. Like I'm sure you probably had some imposter syndrome. Tony, you might have experienced this as well. So like, how do you guys get over that? I still fight imposter syndrome today because it's like as you become more successful, the circle of people that you hang out with becomes more successful, right? And um, the thing that you're measuring yourself against for that imposter syndrome starts to change as well. You know, like when, when I first started investing in real estate, I didn't really have any other friends that were investing in real estate. So when I got that first deal, I immediately became like the smartest person in the room uh, when it came to, to real estate investing, right? And I know Ashley always talks about living in Buffalo, like she doesn't have a big network of folks in that area that were also investing in real estate. So I'm sure when she started doing it, she was that person in, in her circle. But you know, now as you start to, to grow and develop and you meet other people and you know, we have friends that are buying, hey, I've got $800 million in assets under management. I've got this thing happening or this thing happening. You start to question like, man, am, am I really doing this the right way? It's so funny. This is such a, a timely question for me personally because I just reread the book, uh, The Gap and the Gain by uh, Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan. And it's an incredible book for anyone that's entrepreneurial because I think a lot of folks struggle with this. But one of the, one of the things it asks you to do in that book is to whatever situation you currently find yourself in where you're feeling like you're, you're less than or you're feeling like that imposter syndrome, rewind your life's tape 10 years and compare Tony 10 years ago to Tony today. And you'll be so impressed by the amount of ground that you covered. And if you're always comparing yourself to your past self, as opposed to some future ideal or, or someone else's definition of success, there will always be progress there because you're, you're measuring backwards. So I think people get into that imposter syndrome when they start trying to measure externally versus measuring inside themselves. I find myself in rooms, either I walk away feeling usually two different ways. So if it's a room of real estate investors or at a meetup or something to do with real estate, a conference, whatever it may be, I'll walk away and just be like, I actually do know quite a bit about real estate. Or I walk away like, I just learned so much about real estate. And I do prefer the latter where I am literally the least experienced person in the room. And I don't even know how to actually converse in conversation except, oh, yeah, uh-huh. Like, I literally have no value to add because everything is such a high level that they're talking about. But those are the rooms you want to be in to like kind of soak up all that knowledge and learn everything. But I think also getting yourself in rooms where you're helping other people. And even if you don't have a single deal yet, if you listen to one real estate podcast, you have some knowledge of real estate and what it is. You know, attending local meetups, even going on the Bigger Pockets forums and engaging with people, even if it is just like congratulating them on you know, their house hack they just posted about or something like that. You don't have to go in and answer questions, but just start engaging with people. And you'll really start to build these connections, which will also help you feel more confident that you are a real estate investor, that you're involved in this community. Think of churches, cults. People love a sense of community. <laughs> like That is what everybody wants and thrives on, well, most people. And they want some kind of sense of community. 
So once you throw yourself into that real estate investing community online or in person, it will just help like feed kind of that, that nurture that you need. To Tony's point, I think it's something like almost never goes away. And you just, for me, it's not so much the skill of like learning how to make it go away. It's more so just learning how to do it anyway. And that's like one of the skills that I've been working on the most is like not even just imposter syndrome, just anything I don't feel like doing is just learning the skill to just do it anyway. And that could be imposter syndrome. That could just be feeling lazy and not wanting, I know Tony, you bodybuild, like not wanting to go to the gym, like whatever the case is, like just being able to do it anyway. And and that's how I have just tried to get over, over imposter syndrome. I don't know if I could ever like get rid of it altogether. It's just do it anyway. And that just sort of helps. And I just want to, I want to add something to that, Robert, because like this conversation that we're having with the three of us on this podcast right now, it wouldn't be happening if Tony four years ago now, wasn't able to get past imposter syndrome. So before I became the co-host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Ricky podcast, I had my own podcast called Your First Real Estate Investment. And it's still out there on the internet. If you guys want to go find it, it still exists. But I launched that podcast in the summer of 2019. I didn't get my first deal until October of 2019. So I launched this podcast about investing in real estate Three or four months before I ever even closed on my first deal. Now, I wasn't trying to put this facade on or, or pretend to be this super expert real estate person. I started this podcast and said, Hey, my name's Tony J. Robinson. I want to be a real estate investor. So I'm going to go out and interview other real estate investors about their first deal. Come along on this journey with me. And I think that's what people miss is that you don't have to pretend to be someone else. All you have to do is accept your journey, share that journey with other people. And you'd be surprised how many people will resonate with that story. There's a saying that you just have to be like one step ahead of the person that you're trying to help. Like you don't have to be a thousand steps ahead or even 10 steps ahead. You just have to be one step ahead. And this is probably a fake story, but I, I heard this somewhere. I don't know if you guys have heard this, but there was a guy that went into like a college class and pretended to be the professor and he taught the whole lecture and he didn't know anything about the topic, but he was just, he read one page ahead of the students and he could, he, he could teach the previous page because he had already read it. So he taught that page and then he was one page ahead and he could just continue to teach it. And it's it's how you get over this, right? You just realize like, hey, you don't have to be Brandon Turner, right? You don't have to be like this big successful real estate investor. You just have to be to be one one step ahead. I just want to add there's so many different aspects to real estate investing too. Tony and I at BPCon, we did the a rookie meetup and someone said something about they don't have a deal, they're new, they don't know what experience they would bring. So we asked, what do you do for your W-2 job? And he said, I'm a project manager. So then we asked, how many people here would love for somebody to manage their rehab? And almost every single hand went up. So I think too, is like not only just looking at real estate investing and what your knowledge is of that, but what other skills and resources do you have around you that you could use and you can bring that to a partnership too. There's a lot of value add that you can bring. So let's talk about that. You guys have a checklist for 10 things that people should look for in real estate partners. Take us through each of those. There's certain ingredients that I think help make partnerships more successful. And, you know, Ash and I kind of wanted to give folks something that was kind of plug and play, I guess, as they're kind of evaluating people, potential partners to say, does this person work for me as a potential partner? So the, the first thing is communication skills. I think one of the fastest ways to derail not just a real estate partnership, but any kind of partnership is that one or both people lack good communication skills. 
And I don't mean communication skills in the sense of like what we're doing right now, where they're talking on a podcast or getting in front of a stage of people. I mean like interpersonal communication skills, being able to clearly articulate themselves and having the confidence and the courage to have difficult conversations. What happens in some partnerships, and honestly, even in just some relationships, is that one partner starts to feel a certain way about the actions of the other person, and they don't have the courage or the confidence to bring that issue up. So what happens? This person starts to... These negative emotions start to build up. And before you know it, there's this feeling of resentment or anger, or every single little thing this person does now becomes exponentially more annoying because now it's not even about that one instance. It's these days and weeks and months and years of built up tension that I haven't brought up to you. Being able to communicate when things are difficult, I think is one of the the most important skills uh, that you need to look for uh, when you're evaluating someone as a potential partner. Yeah. In the book, we actually put together a partnership pyramid. And at the top of the pyramid, we put communication as the the top piece of it. And then we did structure underneath and then goals kind of as the the foundation. But the next piece that we find important is the financial component. So you want to make sure your financial stability along with your partner's financial stability is solid. So, you know, that's doing some kind of vetting on your partner and also being open to sharing what your finances are. So for example, if and I, I want to be clear that this doesn't mean partner with someone that has money. This is make sure that they can manage the money they do have. So if you're partnering with someone and they can't even pay their credit card bill or they can't even manage their own money, but yet you're going to rely on them to manage your rehab project, manage the budget, whatever that may be. So I think getting a good sense that both partners are in a good financial position as if they maybe each partner needs to have so many cash reserves. We talked about bad things that can happen with partners. And one of those is, oh my gosh, we need to replace the HVAC and we our reserves won't cover that. Each partner needs to put in three grand. Well, partner B may not have that and say, you know what? I don't have it. I can't put it in. That's another big component of partnering with someone too. Third piece would be reliability. And this one I think is a little harder to, to kind of get a gauge on, but you just want to know, like, is this someone that I can, that I can count on? I think one of the best ways to get a sense of someone's character is to not necessarily pay attention to how they treat you, but how are they treating other people? Like when you observe them interacting or talking about other people, what is, what is their energy? What is their dialogue? What, like, like, what are they saying? If every time you talk to that person, they're, they're secretly saying negative things about other people behind that person's back, like what do you think they're doing about you behind your back? If you see them kind of taking shortcuts when they're doing other projects with other people, like what do you think they're going to be doing when they're working with you? So look for these kind of more nuanced, I think, uh, signs to see like, is this a person that I can count on? Because when you get into a partnership with someone, that's basically what you're doing. You're, you're entering into a, a, a contract with, with one another to say, I trust you to do the things that you say you're going to do. You trust me to do the things that I say I'm going to do. And if either one of those pieces aren't working, the, the whole partnership starts to break down. The next component kind of ties into that too is each partner having an understanding of the partnership and your actual contract, the partnership agreement, and having an understanding of what happens now, what happens in the future, or what happens if this happens. So being transparent with each other, going through the contract, making sure each person is clear on what the terms of your partnership agreement are. The next one is about project management. And 
again, this kind of varies by the person depending on what skills you have and what your, your partner has. But it, it is a good thing to, to look for is that, that project management piece. And Asher, that example earlier with the person at BPCon, where everyone wants to be that person's partner because they had this skill set. But if you can have someone in your team, a partner who understands how to take this big, messy thing you're working on, it could be, uh, hey, we're buying this Airbnb or we're setting this Airbnb up. We're managing this rehab. We're doing this wholesale deal. Like all of real estate investing, all of business is just basically process and project management. So if you can have a partner that has those skills to take this sequence and this sequence and this sequence and this sequence and make sure each one is getting done at the right moment and passes off to the next sequence at the right time, that's an incredible skill for you to have and, and something that's important to look for. The next one is financial planning. This can do with just their own personal finances and also the finances of the business. So if you have a project up, is you know, are you both going to be able to budget and plan for what the rehab expenses are, what the holding costs are going to be, and also making sure, as I mentioned before, about having reserves in place if each partner needs to put money into you know the LLC or the joint venture, whatever that may be, if they need to bring money to the table. The next year are somewhat related, so I'll, I'll kind of clump them in as one, but it's someone who can manage the income and the expenses. You know, one of the, the fastest ways to derail any type of real estate transaction is to not know your numbers. And, uh, you know, ask me how I know, right? Cause I, I've been there before where it's like, man, this flip was only supposed to cost this much. Why do we spend, you know, $25,000 more? Uh, so it, it's always beneficial to have one person on the team that can kind of keep the, the checkbook in check, right? And they can say, Hey, here's the budget for this project for whatever it is that we're working on. And, you know, here's how we're going to manage these expenses to make sure we don't exceed that. Or the, the flip side is true as well. Like for us in the short-term rental space, we have the ability to actively manage our income as well, right? Like, hey, are we pricing our property appropriately given the, the current market conditions? And some people come in and they price incredibly low and they leave a bunch of money on the table. So someone who can kind of look at the financial picture of the, the partnership and say, how do we maximize income, reduce expenses is, is also important. We talked a lot about like examples of roles and responsibilities. And one of those was property management. But besides property management, there's also asset management. And one of the key roles of asset management is doing market research. So having an understanding of the market that you are investing in and continuing that research and understanding of where you're investing. So one of those things could be looking at what are market rents? You know, Who's going to be the person that's going to be continuously monitoring that? Things like that. In doing that research, some really good resources are Night Scout or even Bright Investors, a new platform that just came out where you can kind of keep tabs on everything you need to know for market research. But also, that's where you want to stay in alignment with your partner. It's like, okay, at our quarterly meeting, is this still the right market for us? And we need to continue in this. What changes or do we need to pivot or maybe going to a new market or changing strategy, something with the, the current market conditions? And the, the last one here, and this kind of puts a bow on everything we've just talked about, but you want a partner that has a complementary skill set to you. I would never partner with someone who's an exact replica of Tony, right? Like I don't, I don't need someone who's super analytical. I don't need someone that's the, the big visionary. Like if I'm partnering with someone, I need someone who's a good integrator. I need someone who can manage all the, the minutiae. I need someone who can allow me to focus on the areas where I'm uniquely qualified and, and where my strengths are best leveraged. So as you're looking for a partner, that one is incredibly important. Find someone that can fill in the pieces that you lack, that can be strong in the areas where you're weak, and someone that can balance you out in the best ways possible. 
Thanks for going through all of those. I wanted to ask what are some of the biggest mistakes people make when picking partners and then what they make, what the mistakes are that they make once they're actually in the partnership. But having gone through those 10 things, I think it's pretty clear, right? Like the mistakes people make when picking partners is like you pick people that don't do these things. And then when you're actually in the partnership, you make mistakes by not doing these things, right? So it's, you gave the inverse, uh, you know, the, the mistakes are essentially the inverse of everything that you just gave. Is that, is that safe to assume? Yeah, I think so. And you know, you, you kind of touched on this, but I think a, a big mistake that a lot of people make when they're getting into some of those first partnerships is they, they choose the partnership based on proximity. They say, hey, we're friends. I know you. I like you. I think we make great partners together. But they don't do that extra step of really assessing whether or not there's a skill fit there. And that's why you see a lot of partnerships that, that kind of get derailed before they start because from the beginning, they weren't set up the right way. And the second mistake you see a lot of folks make when they're getting into partnerships is they don't have those difficult conversations up front. And they wait for shit to hit the fan before they try and sit down and, and solve for those things. But if you can you know, have those, like, hey, what happens, like, like Ashley said earlier, like, what happens if the property doesn't generate enough revenue? What are we going to do? You should have the answers to that question solved before you enter into that agreement. What happens if one of us wants to sell and the other person doesn't want to sell this real estate? You should have that answer before you get into that agreement. What are Tony's responsibilities? What are Ashley's responsibilities? And what happens if one of us doesn't hold up to those responsibilities? You should have that answer before you get into that partnership. So I think starting the partnership or choosing your partner based on proximity and then failing to have those difficult conversations up front are two mistakes that I think can really derail a, a partnership. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. As part of your your guys' book, you have sample paperwork that's almost like a template for somebody's first partnership. Are those the types of things that you're putting in that paperwork? All of those questions that you just answered basically and all the things that you need to think through all the situations that might might happen like what are the most important parts of the paperwork yeah so we did a joint venture agreement and then we did an operating agreement for an llc so we gave those as samples and of course you know tony did the joint venture so it's specific to california and mine is out of new york so very you know definitely get your own from your own attorney this is just a you know a starting point for you but a lot of the the 10 things that we went through, we also give that that checklist of, of things to actually ask you and your partner. But a really, really big thing in any agreement that you're doing is not only putting in there what's happening right now, but putting in those exit strategies so that if something does come up. So in the book, we have a chapter that talks about different clauses that you may not think of, your attorney may not think of, kind of unique things that you can add in there. So for example, buy, sell. What happens if somebody wants to sell? Are you getting first right of refusal? Can they go out to the open market and all of a sudden, Robert's now my my partner, Tony sold you know his shares to him, his percentage. So a lot of things like that. Um, also, life insurance policies. What happens if Tony dies? I'm now automatically, according to his will, I'm now partners with his wife, Sarah. What if she wants nothing to do with the the partnership and I want nothing to do with the partnership? What happens there? Or what if she does want to, but she's like, yeah, I want to keep Tony's share, but you know what? I'm not going to do any work. I'm not going to do anything, which would never be Sarah, by the way. (laughs) But you know, then I'm now stuck with Tony's wife as my partner, but I'm having to do all the work. So putting in a life insurance policy where the business actually pays the policy, Tony is the owner of the policy, and I am the beneficiary of the policy. So if Tony were to die, I can take those funds and I can buy Sarah out and I can give her that money. And now she has this nice lump sum of cash. She doesn't have to worry about owning a business. And I now have full control of the business. So we go through different things like that. You know, what's super funny, actually, is that uh, Sarah and I literally just had a conversation maybe like two days ago. And she was like, you know, if you died, I don't know if I'd want to keep running the business. Like, I feel like I would just like sell everything off. So Robert, if I end up under a bridge, just know that Sarah and Ashley conspired together so they could split that, uh, that life insurance payout. I'll go to bat for you, Tony. She's leading to you get to your goal. What was your goal, Tony? A hundred million? A billion in real estate. A so billion. I I, yeah, she's waiting till that point. You got some time. What, <laughs> I got, yeah, yeah I, got, I got a little bit of time. <laughs> I'll be your witness, Tony. I'll be there for you. So I, I found and met my real estate partner actually at the gym. And I didn't really like set out to do that. But looking back, I'm actually glad that I did. And I personally think it could be a good place to meet partners. 
real estate or, or otherwise, what do you guys think are the best places to find real estate partners? So for me, all of my partners have been friends first, then um, business partners. So I spent a lot of time, like my first partner, we grew up next door to each other. So we knew each other since we were two. We knew each other for about 25 years before we actually invested together. But a big component of that was his dad was an investor. And I look at what your dad is doing. Why don't you do that? And he's like, yeah, why am I not doing that? And then my second partner was actually the boyfriend of one of my other friends. And he already had you know, an, a rental property. And so we started talking real estate. It was about a year before we actually partnered on a deal. And then my third partner, we met on a boat and he talked and complained about how much he hated his job. And so I was like, well, there's this thing called real estate investing you could maybe do. And so then he started working alongside with me and then eventually became my my business partner. But so for me, I'm very, very like picky and choosy as to who I partner with. And I really have to like establish. I've definitely like jumped into getting to know other people like who want a partner. And I just, you know, I haven't pulled the trigger with anyone else yet. I did partner with my brother and sister each on a deal, but that was different than having stranger partnership and stuff. Would you do it again? You know, family, going into business with family, would you do it again? Yes, if I have full control of the deal. <laughs> I took a, a slightly different approach from Ashley. I, you know, I think we have 19 or 20 partners uh, across our different properties. And two of those are family. You know, uh, one of them is Sarah's cousin, one of them is my first cousin. Everyone else were, were strangers to us basically before we did that, that partnership together. And they, uh, they all came through the, the platform that we've built. You know, uh, they, they would reach out and say, Hey, Tony, you know, I've seen you on the podcast, on YouTube, wherever, you know, we'll love the opportunity to work with you. And, and that's kind of how the, those partnerships mostly started. We were, I think, picky to an extent of, of who we worked with as well. You know, it, it wasn't like uh, I found a deal and then I look for the first warm body and say, Hey, let's do this together. There was a little bit of like us getting to know each other. So there'd be a, you know, phone conversation, Zoom calls, uh, a lot of email exchanges before. And as you start to talk to people, you start to get a sense of like, hey, who, will I enjoy working with this person? And there are several partnerships that we've had, or there are several people who wanted to partner with us who we ended up not working with because during that initial kind of vetting phase, we just kind of got like, you know, not the right vibes from them. Ours were mostly strangers, but we did take the time to make sure that we got to know them. And that's part of the reason why we have so much in our joint venture agreement because we don't personally know a lot of these folks. So we had to make sure that a lot of those things were dialed in up front because we didn't know who these people were and if we could really trust them, you know, if it wasn't written uh, written down. What are your guys' goals right now? Tony, you mentioned I believe a billion in real estate, but like what are you what are you guys working on? What are you working towards for both of you? What are your biggest goals right now? On the real estate side, yeah, my my goal is to buy one billion dollars worth of real estate in the next nine and a half years. So I set that goal at the beginning of this year. And um, the reason why that number is so big is because first, you know, I, I have friends and mentors in my life that are marching towards that goal. You know, you, you talked about Brandon Turner earlier. He's bought like eight hundred million dollars worth of real estate in the last like four years or something crazy like that, right? So I, I know that I've, I've, I'm seeing it. I know that it's a possibility. And the ideal situation is that once we get to that number, that we start just selling off a bunch of uh, those assets. And then, you know, I've got, you know, hopefully a couple hundred million bucks that I can just go sit down and, you know, lay on a beach in Costa Rica or, or Portugal for a while and, and relax. So the, the real estate side is a big one for us. 
really focused on growing our coaching program. Uh, we launched that last year and we've been like slowly putting that together. And the, the amount of fulfillment that we've gotten by growing Alpha Hosts, our, our community has been light years beyond anything I could have imagined. Because when we're recording content in the podcast and we're doing it for YouTube, it's one to many. And we hit record and I never get to see who's on the other side. But through that program, we've helped countless people get that first deal. And to see those messages kind of pop over and over again, that's, that's a dopamine hit unlike anything I've ever, ever experienced before. So I say those are the two big goals for us. We've got some smaller things like I'm launching a property management company in the short-term rental space. We have our cleaning company. We're doing some, some more arbitrage. So those are some ancillary goals. But the, the big ones are the community that we're building and the, the billion dollars. Isn't that such a weird thing about podcasting? You just like speak into the mic and it just goes into the void. And you like you never hear anything really. Like, you know, you get emails and DMs and stuff on social sometimes, but like it just goes out into the void. There's no, there's nobody like really talking back. That's always like been the weirdest thing about podcasting to me. I think it's so weird that Apple, you know, the biggest podcasting platform there is, hasn't tried to like turn podcasting into more of like a social network right. where people can interact on specific episodes and have comments and followers and that thing because they just added that to Spotify. Did they really? A little bit. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you can comment on episodes now on, on uh, Spotify. Uh, okay. Yeah. App, Apple's behind the game, man. Not surprised. Ashley, so what's going on with you? Yeah. What, are, what are your biggest goals right now? It's way more difficult than it is for me, than Tony, to think big picture. Like I struggle so much with like seeing five years down the road. Seeing like, what I want a year from now, like that is even a struggle for me. But what I want in one year from now is next summer, I want to live at a lake house. I've got to get a property under contract and get a lake house that I can afford. And then also maybe rent out as a long-term rental over the winter months or something like that. But that's like my personal goal right there. But also it's an asset too. So having a lake house, waterfront property is only (laughs) going up. So might as well buy it now. But as far as business goals, I launched a property management company for my long-term rentals this year. And then uh, we have 130 units right now, residential and commercial. It's just uh, my units and then one other investor. And we're not taking on any clients. It's just our own rentals that we're doing. Um, sometimes I think owners are worse than tenants. Uh, as <laughs> looking at myself as an owner, <laughs> we're trying to work with a property management company. But so I'm just really dialing down the systems and processes. I've hired a couple of VAs and I'm just trying to get that to run as automatic as possible already. I have very little interaction than. Right now, my main focus is just defining those systems and processes even more and dialing down everything that's happening. But my goal is to just be really passive with that, but also stabilize my portfolio after it's been with a third-party property management company and just really maximize my cash flow on each property. And then, of course, continuing to add some short-term rentals and some long-term rentals. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to check in with you both. Probably uh, Tony, nine and a half years. And then uh, (laughs) Ashley, I'll check in with you. My parents have a camp. It's not a lake house by any means. It's actually just like a seasonal camp site in a campground, but it's near the water, basically on the water up where I live. So next summer when I'm, when I'm there, I'll be thinking of you and I'll check in with you and hopefully, hopefully you'll be doing the same. As we wrap up today, tell everybody where they can go to find you guys. Tony, you mentioned your YouTube. Ashley, I know you got some social going on. Tell people where they go to find your books, everything, where where you uh, want people to go to connect with you guys. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at Wealth From Rentals. 
Then you can also find us on the Real Estate Rookie podcast and uh, our new book, Real Estate Partnerships at biggerpockets.com slash partnerships. Then I also have another book called Real Estate Rookie that you can find on Bigger Pockets, Amazon, or in Barnes and Noble. You guys can connect with me on Instagram. I'm at Tony J. Robinson. Uh, if you're on Threads, I'm on Threads at Tony J. Robinson. Sam on Twitter. On YouTube, actually, it's, it's X Tony, isn't it? X now. Oh yeah, I guess it's X now. Yeah, if you're if you're if you're Xing. But uh, on uh, on YouTube, my wife and I are at the Real Estate Robinsons. We talk all things short term mental on that channel as well. Um, and if you guys want to check out Alpha Host, just head over to the realestaterobinsons.com slash Alpha Host, and we'll love to help you guys build that business out as well. But if I can just end with one quick story, Robert. I'm so passionate about the book because partnerships have have really, for both Ash and I, like changed the trajectory of our real estate business. Like most people, when I graduated from college, I got a, a job in you know the, the corporate world, climbed the corporate ladder, you know had a really healthy six figure salary, and two days before Christmas in 2020, I ended up losing my job. So you know we go from this big salary down to zero in a you know two minute conversation with the HR director at my job. And it was our ability to leverage partnerships quickly, efficiently, and effectively that allowed us to keep buying real estate. And when I lost my job, we had two active short-term rentals. By 12 months later, we were up to like 15. And the majority of those deals came from partnerships that we had formed with other people. So there's a tremendous amount of power in real estate partnerships when you do it the right way. And our hope is that the book can, uh, can give you guys the roadmap and the framework to do it the right way. Awesome. Thank you both for joining me today. You took time out of your, your valuable time out of your day to join me. It was great to catch up with you both. I'm super pumped to hear that you guys are doing awesome things. I'm not surprised. I'll put all the links to your guys' resources in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in connecting with you guys. And uh, till we talk again, thanks. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.